Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. I went ahead and read verse 15 even though it's not part of the text I announced. But our subject today is the proof of saving grace. The proof of saving grace. And the subject begins in verse 11 concerning the grace of God. Of course, any student of the Bible knows if you've read the Bible or familiar with it, and even a lot of people that are not believers, if they're familiar with the Bible, you would have to come to the same conclusion that the theme of God's Word, the Bible, the Holy Bible, is the grace of God. The grace of God. And anybody reading the Bible without that in mind is certainly not going to understand the Bible. But if you understand that and know that as a child of God, then the Bible takes real meaning because we see grace in places where it is throughout in the pages of Scripture where the Word does not appear. It shows many times in actions and illustrations, etc., etc., and of course, when we're talking about the grace of God, we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior as sinners. Because the grace of God would be meaningless without the Savior, the only begotten Son of God. So they're so intertwined, we're talking about the same thing. When we talk about the theme being the Bible and Christ, the object of the grace of God, because nowhere is the grace of God seen any greater anywhere outside of the person of God's Son. So he is that supreme object and certainly the greatest manifestation of God's grace as is God's love in that God sent his only begotten Son into the world to save sinners. Now, there are many, many people that give lip service to the grace of God. Many lost people give lip service to the grace of God. People can read and study the Bible like a textbook and they would come to the conclusion because it's that clear that by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. That is a principle that is clearly set forth from Genesis to Revelation. That salvation is by grace and grace alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. But you can believe the principle of something or the teaching of something, the doctrine of something without the experience of the thing. And so many people believe that salvation is by grace but are without the experience of grace. And that's very clear because salvation is not in what you claim or profess but in what you actually possess. And so the devils probably believe salvation is by grace because they see it all the time in that regard. 
but they certainly have not what we call the experience of grace or of saving grace. Kind of reminds us of Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Remember that? Nicodemus was a teacher, a master, so to speak. And he knew all kinds of religious principles, doctrines, and teachings. But Jesus' message to him was one about the experience of being born again. That salvation was not in the intellect or of what you know in principle or in teaching, but in experience. And I do believe in an experience of salvation simply because that's what you see in the Bible. By experience, and I'm going to be brief here, I mean that when the grace of God is applied to a sinner, they experience that grace. You know about it. It's not something passive that happens that you never knew that happened. That's what I mean by experience. And I don't know anybody in the Bible that we could go to and put our finger on the page and say, this person was saved but didn't know it. No such thing. People experience the grace of God. They repent of their sins. That's active. And they believe actively upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is the experience of the bestowing of grace. So our subject today, as in the text, speaks of the proof of saving grace. And of course, there always has been and will be till the end of time confusion about what salvation really is. You can believe things again in your head, but be without the experience. Many people may be very orthodox in doctrine, but will still go to hell because, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. What you know is not enough. And it kind of reminds me of an experience I recently had uh, with uh, my, one of my grandsons. And we were having a discussion, and the discussion happened to be about spiders, of which I think he had seen one and thought he had saw a black widow, and we were talking all about this. And so we were discussing, and I was telling him about what happens, you know, and how to identify one, and, you know, what happens if it bites you in this. And we were just sitting, passing the time talking about this. And I noticed he had a red spot on his knee. And it looked like from either where he'd been hurt or something, and just, just a little red discoloration, you know, I asked him what happened or something. Or other. Well, we kept on talking. And finally he asked me, he said, well, now if Black Widow Spider bit me, he said, would it look like this red spot here on my knee or this little bitty white bump down here by my ankle? And I said, son, well, I, don't, I think it would look more like the red spot except it would be a whole lot worse. And my point being in illustrating that and bringing that up is we were discussing the principle and the facts and the truth about a spider bite. And he had a red spot in one place and a little white bump in another but neither one of them were a black widow bite. He had not experienced it. So the things we were talking about were things that he could know and understand to a degree, 
But of course, nobody is going to understand the bite of a black widow except somebody who's been bitten by a black widow. And I've told him, I said, when a venomous spider or something like that bites you, I said, not only will it be a little bit red like what you have there, it's going to get big red. It's going to swell up very bad. You're going to get sick. It could kill and does kill some people. And a lot of times where you get bit, the skin and the meat and stuff just rots away and leaves a hole. Well, I've never had that happen to me, but I've seen it on others. But the bottom line is we're without the experience. And when you have the experience, nobody's going to have to tell you what it feels like then, are they? You know. And that's why I say you can know all about things the Bible teaches, but if you've experienced the saving grace of God and the conviction of sin, you don't need anybody explaining it to you anymore. You know what it means to be lost, and you know what it means to be saved. You know what the conviction and guilt and shame of sin feels like, and you know what it feels like to be forgiven by the grace of God. So the text literally tells us and gives us clear proof of what a born-again saving grace experience is like to a sinner. And that's the things we want to talk about. So let's, let's jump in, shall we? Let's talk first of all about God's grace. And when we say God's grace, we're going to distinguish between two types of grace, which is not the first time I've said this at this church, but we never know who's turning, tuning in in our audience, so we'll briefly make it known again today. There is what we would call general grace. And when we're talking about God's grace, we're talking about God's goodness. There is no grace of God anywhere where it's not God's goodness being manifested. And general grace, or God's goodness, is to all of the creation. It applies to everything He created in the book of Genesis. And it has continued to this day and will continue till the end of time. God didn't make it and turn it loose. God sustains it. And God blesses it. And He takes care of it. He is the administrator over all of it. And all we can say in reflecting to that and what the Bible says is, God is good and God is better than I ever thought God could be. Especially, general grace is manifested to mankind. Now the Bible's full of scripture on this. I'm not going to take a lot of time to read it, but I am going to point out a few just to remind you what the Bible says about it. In Psalms chapter 65, reading at about verse 9, it says, Thou visitest the earth and waterest it. Thou greatly enrichest it with the river of God, which is full of water. Thou preparest them corn. When thou hast so provided for it, thou waterest the ridges thereof abundantly, thou settlest the furrows thereof, thou makest it soft with shire, thou blessest the springing thereof, thou crownest the year with thy goodness, and thy paths, thy paths drop fatness. They drop upon the pasture of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks, the valleys are covered ever with corn. They shout for joy, they also sing. I mean, God is taking care of His creation. God can give it. God can withhold it. But if God didn't do the things I just read unto you, you and I wouldn't be here. And probably there wouldn't be any plant life. And there probably wouldn't be any animal life. 
And there wouldn't be any ocean life. There wouldn't be any life at all. But God's grace is to his creation. Why, think of the scripture plumb back in the Old Testament uh, when you might remember, you'll remember the episode, you may not remember the verse, in Exodus 34 and 6, when Moses requested to see the glory of God, and God said, well, I'll hide you and I'll pass by. What, is, what was the declaration as God passed by? This is it. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. I mean, this is like an announcer, you know, an MC announcing, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. That's the God of Bible. His grace and His goodness knows no end in that respect. I want to read one more in Psalms 145 and verse 9. The Lord is good to all and His tender mercies are over all His works. I'm going to stop there. But if you want to read more detail and be blessed about all that God does in general grace, just go to Psalms 104 and start reading there. All kinds of good stuff in there about the details of God's general grace. Well, what can we say about general grace? Well, we all get it. We all get it. It rains on the just and the unjust. God's taking care of the wicked like He's taking care of the righteous, not in the same way and not in the end way. But he's taking care of them or they wouldn't be taken care of because people can't take care of themselves. We need God. He doesn't need us. But general grace is a visible thing. It is an outward thing. It is an external thing, isn't it? We often say we're breathing God's air. We're living in God's world. We're walking on God's earth. We're eating God's food. We're drinking God's water. We're blessed by God's rain and everything else that blesses us, right? And that is for the most part external, right? And it is temporal, and it is visible, and it is mostly acknowledged by and through our senses, isn't it? And that's wonderful. We thank God for it, and we praise God for it. Everything exists and is sustained and enjoys the blessings of God whether they know it or not. And this is the great shame, isn't it? We, like the psalmist, sometimes lift up our voices in private or wherever in lamentation. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His wonderful works to the children of men. But multitudes, masses, and the majority of mankind have and will go through life taking what God gives and not acknowledging the hand from which it comes. Like I told you recently about that little program that's very humanistic. And the University of Houston puts on the public radio a world made by human hands. There's no such thing. There never has been, never will be. And it, in my heart, I, I swear to you, God is my witness. If and when time to time and I hear that every time it just makes like a big rock turned over in my stomach and I'm not saying that to be critical I'm just saying how grievous it is that again the raven probably knows more about the hand that feeds them than fallen mankind to think that men shaped this world that we live in man hadn't shaped nothing and everything man shaped is corrupt 
But our God has done and is doing wonderful things in creating and sustaining. Well, the outward experience of grace, and we're thankful for that. God's goodness over all creation, all peoples, irrespective of who they are and how big of sinners they are. God gives them life. God gives them food. God sustains them. God blesses them. And they don't deserve it. And they don't, you don't ever get a thank you for it. But that's God's general grace. Then there is, as we see in the text, saving grace. Because it is the grace of God that bringeth salvation. Now the term saving grace is not in the Bible as far as I know. But here it is right here. If it is the grace of God that brings salvation, then it's saving grace. What else can it be? It is that what we call sometimes work of grace that brings salvation. And just note the simplicity of it. First of all, it's, it's God's grace, right? It's not man's grace. It's God's grace. And God is the great, not only owner and possessor of grace, but the dispenser of grace, just like we talked about in general grace. God dispenses grace in what measure, what amount, whom, where, how long it pleases Him. As he does it with the rain and moisture and heat and everything else in the elements and in what we call nature, so he does with saving grace. Now here's where we run into a wall with a lot of people. A lot of people believe God's sovereignty to have over his creation and do what he wants to as far as general grace, but when it comes to saving grace, they think God's unfair if he gives it to one and withholds it from another. Not so. The Bible asks that question. The Holy Spirit asks that question in the book of Romans. Is there unrighteousness with God? Absolutely not. God forbid. Why? Because nobody deserves it and God's not obligated to give it. It's freely given, therefore it's grace when He does give it. And we praise God for that. But saving grace is not external grace, is it? Saving grace is not something you see. Saving grace is not something you go like to the, gro to the uh, grocery store and see it on a shelf and pluck it off and take it home with you, is it? It's not within the realm of the five senses. It is the soul that experiences saving grace, isn't it? It is invisible. And it is inward. It is inwardly in the soul that we are quickened, made alive, born again, as Christ said to Nicodemus. It is within the soul that the sinner is changed into a new creature in Christ. It is within the soul where the transformation starts, where we cease to be servants of sin and become servants of the Most High God. So saving grace is within, and it is much further and much more powerful than, and the effect of it also is eternal. So it's so much greater than just general grace. It is very unique, very peculiar, very special, and has eternal blessings. So we all cherish and champion saving grace, don't we? The grace of God that brings salvation. You didn't go get it. You didn't do nothing to earn it. No sinner does. God brought it to you. If God didn't bring to you whatever you're trusting in for salvation, then you're not saved. Because salvation is of the Lord. Salvation belongeth to the Lord. The Lord dispenses grace. 
So that is saving grace. And let me say to you, there is no substitute for saving grace. None whatsoever. Acts 2.37, on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says, as Peter preached on that day, the gospel and the Holy Spirit empowered, it said, and they were pricked in their heart. They didn't receive general grace. They'd been living under general grace until the day of Pentecost. But upon hearing the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit through the instrumentality of Peter, they were pricked in their heart. Peter couldn't prick their heart. There's not a preacher can prick the heart of a dead sinner. There's not a church, an organism, an organization, or any and all put together that can quicken a dead sinner. But God does and can and will. Pricked in their heart. It's the same thing we read about in Hebrews chapter 4, 12, and 13 where it talks about the Word of God being quick and powerful, more so than a two-edged sword that can divide asunder even to the thoughts and marrow of the bones and the joints, revealing the intents and thoughts of the heart. Well, when a work of grace takes place within, sinners then experience the vileness of sin. The guilt of sin is laid upon us, is it not? The burden of sin is laid upon us. That's an inward, internal thing. And you cannot experience it without knowing it. To feel the discomfort of sin and then the peace and joy of having your sins forgiven by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. I fear today that too many people believe in the principles of general grace And like many people, they take the grace of God like it's a warm, fuzzy blanket. And they wrap themselves in it and they're comforted by the feel and the effect of believing in God in certain verses of Scripture and the grace of God and so forth. But they've never been pricked in their heart. Never been born again. Let me say to you today, if you have experienced something and you think it's a warm, cozy feeling and that salvation, you're deceived. Yes, I said it, you're deceived. Salvation is not about a feeling to start with. Salvation is about being convicted, afflicted that you are a sinner. When they were pricked in their heart, Do you think that they felt something? Absolutely. They felt guilt because they asked Peter, what must we do to be saved? They were pricked in their heart. means they were pricked in their conscience, which accused them of being sinners. And let me tell you, you can't experience that without being saved. The sharp arrow of God's convicting grace is the saving grace that leads us to the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't be convinced that you're saved because you felt something comforting. No, I would say to you rather, if you haven't felt something discomforting, if the Spirit of God by the Scriptures hasn't convicted, convinced, and laid the guilt of sin upon you, that's what you need to be questioning about experiencing Because Christ said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, right? 
I mean, Christ come to comfort the afflicted. And if you haven't been afflicted by sin, Christ is not for you. But to we who have been, it is the power of God unto salvation. And we thank God for that saving grace. What is the proofs? Well, the scripture is very plain. There's three points here that are very clear. Before we get into those, I want to say a quick word here that it says in verse 11 that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. You know, there are those who propound the teaching that God is trying to save everybody and God will give every human being the opportunity to be saved. That sounds good. People love it. It's preached in a lot of places. The biggest thing wrong with it is it's the biggest lie that's ever been told. It's simply not true. You can't go to the Bible and prove that. But people will read a verse like this and just want to believe that out of want to and not look at the Scripture in the context or in the harmony of Scripture. In other words, if this verse says, it means what it says on the surface, that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, then every human being is going to be saved. That's, that's the logical result. If that grace appears to every human being, all men, then everybody's going to heaven and nobody's going to hell. And the Bible don't teach that, does it? The Bible teaches, I believe, with all my heart, that there's going to be more people in hell than there's going to be in heaven because there's a broad road going there and a lot of people on it. It says many, and there's a straight and narrow way, and few there be that's going that way. So we, uh, we eliminate that, that it's not talking universal salvation here at all. But it's really following on what the first ten verses says. When this chapter began here, Paul to Titus, he spoke to him concerning different classes of people. He talked about the aged men, the aged women. He talked about the young men, he talked about the young women. And then he talked about servants. So he's talking about all kinds and types of men regardless of age, sex, uh, or bondage or freedom in that respect. And he's just following with the same same thought. The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all kinds or all types of men in all generations. That's exactly what it is speaking about. Because we know, again, the Bible teaches us that God for many, many centuries and generations just let the Gentiles go their own way, their own idolatrous pagan ways. Acts 14 to 16. And he, you know, he just let the Gentiles go their own way. God had appointed a time when he's going to graft the Gentiles in, didn't he? Paul at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 says, Concerning the Gentiles, at the times of this ignorance, that is the ignorant idolatry without knowledge of God or the truth of God, the oracles of God, the Gentiles went their own way. It says, the times of this ignorance, of their ignorance, God winked at. He just didn't do nothing. He just let things be as they would be. And remember, even when Christ was here, he gave a restricted commission initially in Matthew 10. Go not in the way of the Samaritans, but go ye in the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember that? And then only after and previous to, after his resurrection and previous to his ascension, did he enlarge that and say, Go ye into all the world, to every creature in that regard. So, it hath appeared to all men. This appearing is noteworthy also because the appearing here gives the idea of a brightness. Uh, a bright brilliance that shines forth. 
And remember that the gospel in the Old Testament times, there was the light of the gospel there, but it was a dim light. Nevertheless, it was a light. It was a light that men had faith in, a light that men could see and be saved, and they did. However, it was in many cases in types and shadows, wasn't it? We've talked about this before. It was like the low light of the dawning of a day, right? If you get up, you know, early of the morning, or if you did this morning, before the sun came up, there was darkness, and then there was that dusky dawning, and it started getting light and light, and then eventually the sun popped up, and it was a brilliant light, right? That's what we're talking about here. There was the dimness of that light until, guess who showed up and started started it? John the Baptist. Then Christ. What, what did I read this morning when we started our service? John said he was a light, but he wasn't the true light. But he was a light, the first light that really began to shine after 400 years of absolute darkness from the Old Testament. To the, and then Christ, the true light, came. And then the apostles came and the church preaching and teaching that true light and we continue until this day. So we live in the brightness and brilliance of that light that appeared and it began with John the Baptist Christ and the apostles and before that it was dim. Alright, the proof is very simple. It begins in verse 12. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all kinds, types of people of all generations teaches us. What? Teaches us. It instructs us. Teaches us. Believers. Always. And let me pause right there and say. It teaches us. Always. It doesn't teach some believers and not other believers. No it doesn't. This as surely as the saving grace of God saves your soul. It's going to teach you some things. Okay. I mean it can't be your teacher and not teach. It can't be present within you and not teach. You can't have the Holy Spirit and not be taught something at a bare minimum. It's impossible because He is the great teacher. It teaches us a positive and a negative, and the negative comes first. First of all, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. That's what the saving grace of God does. Not only saves your soul, assures you your sins have been remitted, but it comes and stays. It's not like getting the flu and you get it and you got it a while and then after a while it goes and wears off and you no longer have it again. God doesn't save sinners like that. I've often called that the, the putting the maverick brand on, you know, like you catch a maverick cow, you brand it and what do you do? You turn it right back loose out on the range. It don't matter anymore because it's got your brand on God don't save sinners that way, even though some people preach and teach that He does. No, 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 no. When God starts, you know, it's us that start things and don't finish them. It's us that are not thorough in our doings and our tasks and things, right? It's we that procrastinate. God's never done that. Let me tell you today, when God starts something, He always finishes it. Now, He can create in six days if He wanted to. He could have created 600 days if He wanted to. That's up to God, whatever He wants to do. But when He starts something, He always finishes it. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Paul says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. When God saved you and made you a new creation in Christ, that was the beginning. 
And that's what we often say in baptism of a convert, isn't it? When somebody's professed Christ, we say, now your life is starting. Your voluntary obedience to the ordinance of baptism as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saying, declaring to the world and those that knew you know you, today I am a new creation in Christ. Today I am starting forth, living my life in obedience to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what you're announcing. It's a public profession by the act of baptism. And this is what Paul is saying. God begins that work and God will finish that work. We are responsible in that work, but when it's all said and done, we can't take credit. We have to say, He did it. He did it. He did it. 2.13 For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to two of His good pleasure. You know, I cannot read or quote one of those without quoting the other. They're just inseparable twins. God begins a work. God finishes a work. You're saved today by God's grace. God's working on you. He's been working on you however long you've been saved. He'll work on you till you take your last breath or till He comes for you. You're a work in progress. I'm not saying that to be funny. That's, that's cute, but it is true. It was cute. It was true before it was cute in that respect. And God's work is for us to be conformed to the will of God and to the person of Christ to do His good pleasure. So this is what it's saying. Den- denying ungodliness. Or rather, I say in teaching us there. It's what I, the point I'm making here. God is now working and has been working ever since God has saved you by His grace. Let me read a scripture in Hebrews that complements this. And then we'll get into the do's and don'ts very quickly. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 21 says, uh, his prayer is here and that God make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. So those three scriptures just, just are so intertwined, they're a cord that cannot be separated. Now, what is this work? What is this work? Well, it's two things. First of all, the denying, it says, ungodliness and worldly lust. Which, simply put, is an abstinence from sin, a fleeing from sin, a cessation from sin. Remember the scripture in Ephesians that speaks about being born again. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1. Notice verse 2 and 3. Where in times past you walked according to the prince, the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. We walked according to the course of the world. Verse 3. Among whom we all had our conversation in times past. Both those verses say it was times past that we were fulfilling the lust of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children. You got that? Past tense. This is what this generation is not getting because a lot of preachers are lying to them, telling them you can be whatever kind of sinner you want to be and stay that kind of sinner and keep continuing on in whatever sin you're doing and still go to heaven and you can't do it. The Bible does not teach that. That is a deception. 
Let me put it to you like this. Saul of Tarsus was a persecutor and a murderer of God's people, was he not? How many people did he murder after he was saved by God's grace? How many people did he put in prison? There was a cessation of that activity and that wrongdoing and that sin when God saved him, did he? He no longer spoke against God's people. He spoke for them. He no longer was an enemy of the cross in Christ. He was a champion of the cross. And he no longer submitted people to death for being a Christian. But he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ by which people could become Christians. Right? When God saved Zacchaeus, did he keep on cheating people? No, he started a work of restitution for the people he'd robbed. Time passed, do you get it? The Gadarene demonic, when Christ saved that man, or those two men, did they keep on terrorizing the people? Were they violent still? Did they still cut themselves and wail and moan and cry out demonically? Of course not. Time passed. Saving grace changes everything. Did the adulteress, that we don't not told, but you'd be a fool to believe that the adulteress in John 8 continued in a path of adultery after the Lord forgave her. In fact, Jesus' words is, and this is exactly what it's teaching when it says, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, go and sin no more. Now that's what the grace of God teaches you. Has the grace of God taught you that? I hope you can say it's been teaching me that ever since God saved me. Praise God. Because you can be assured you've been saved by the grace of God. If it's teaching you to get out of sin, to get away from sin, and to quit sin. My favorite scripture on all of this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You've heard me say it many times, and again stressing the past tense. 1 Corinthians 6 and 9, Know ye not? And again, we would say to the world today and the people that teach otherwise, Don't you know? Can you not read the Bible? That the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Fornicators. Habitual fornication. You're not going to heaven if you're engaged in that. Habitual idolatry. Not ceasing. From idolatry. You're not going to heaven. If you continue in adultery day in, day out, week in, month in, year out, you're not going to heaven. If you're effeminate, homosexual, abusers themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, if you're still stealing after you think you've been saved, you're not going to heaven. If you're still covetous, Zacchaeus wasn't covetous no more when the saving grace of God come. I mentioned to you again, just emphasis again. He didn't extort no more. The reviler quits reviling. These individuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, here it is. And such were some of you. Were, past tense, time past. Ephesians 2, 2 and 3. Times past, but no more. Why? You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. And it's by the Spirit of our God. That's the difference. That's what's happened. 
What did Christ say? And I believe this needs to be heralded time and time again because people are not getting it today. They're getting lied to. Jesus said, if you can't deny yourself and deny yourself of worldly pleasures, lust, and sin that feed your flesh just like before, He has no part with you. Luke chapter 9 verse 23. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here's the Lord's words. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. I believe that's foreign in our day, isn't it? Self-denial. That's another one of those things like guilt, shame, and embarrassment. It's going out the window. No, no, forget it. This culture, this generation will not have anything to do of denying self. You're not going to deny me anything. The government don't have a right to deny you. The neighbor don't have a right to deny you. Parents don't have a right to deny you. And on and on we go. It's just heartbreaking. Christ taught self-denial. And if you're unable to deny yourself, that means you don't have the grace to do it. You don't have the power to do it. You can't do it of yourself. No sinner can. But if you're a child of God, you can. You know why? Because I just said a while ago, what's he doing? He's working in you. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's a daily denial. It's a daily faith. It's a daily dependence. It's a daily prayer. It's a daily sacrifice. It's not some days, it's all days. God's people are the only ones that can deny themselves worldly things. And you can't do it alone. It's by the grace of God. Have you given up sinful, selfish pleasure since God saved you? There's your answer. Whether you experience saving grace. You don't have to tell me. I don't need to know. The church don't need to know. God knows. Can you say with a clear conscience, yes, thank God I was able to give this up. God sa- I couldn't give it up before. But when God saved me, I was able to give it up. And God, by His grace, I'm still giving it up. And then this thing showed up, and now that I'm in the practice of giving it up, and, and on and on, that's our life as Christians. Christians are self-deniers because we want to believe, please Him that called us out of that and into His marvelous, marvelous life. Again, summed up, go and sin no more. Second thing, live soberly, righteously, and godly. The other was a don't, this one's a do. And if you want to know what living soberly, righteously, and godly means, it simply means what the other was not. Not living in ungodliness and worldly lust. And if you want to know what not living in ungodliness and worldly lust is, it's living soberly, righteously, and godly. It's that simple. They're simultaneous. It's like if I set a, a half a cup of water up here, it's got half air and half water in it. If I pour some of the water out of it, it's going to have more air in it. That's the proportion, folks. The more sin there is in life, the less peace and joy and blessings of the Holy Spirit there is. And the more you fill yourself with the Spirit and obedience to Christ, the less sin there's going to be. Because you know what? They're intolerable one to the other. They're contrary one to the other. The flesh worketh against the Spirit. The old man, the new man, contrary one to the another. Soberly simply means that you got your, you got your act together. You think right. 
Does a drunk person think right? Does an intoxicated person think right? It's an embarrassment to watch somebody who's intoxicated or under the control of anything. Whether it's smoking marijuana or whether they're pickled drunk, they're not in their right mind. Sinners aren't in their right mind. When you live to yourself and don't deny yourself anything, you're not in your right mind. But when God saves us, then we're in our right mind. And we continue to get better and better at being in our right mind. And what is sober the opposite of? Intoxication. When we're lost, what are we intoxicated with? Sin. Alcohol controls the alcoholic. Drugs controls the drug addict. Right? I mean, that's natural. Keeps us out of our right mind. It is an addiction. Sinners are addicted to sin. We all were. Some kind, some type, some numerous sins. But when God saves us, the saving grace of God allows us to think right, do right, be obedient, and not sin like we did before. Righteously and godly simply means obedient. Simply means obedient. Simply saying, self, you can't have that. Self, you can't think that. Self, you can't do that. Self, you can't say that. And by denying self, you are doing righteous things. It is the sober mind of the believer that says, God's Word has said, I shouldn't look at that, say that, do this, go there, whatever. That's, that's thinking right. That's thinking accord to the Bible, isn't it? obediently one final thing quickly the third thing is anticipation looking for the scripture says our text says looking for and when I say when I read looking for you know what I see on the page anticipation that's what anticipation is isn't it I mean, it's looking forward to something. If you're anticipating, you're looking forward. The grace of God teaches you that too. You got it? It teaches you, don't do these things you used to do. Do these things that pleases God. And in the doing, you won't be doing the don'ts. And if you don't, you'll be doing the doing. And finally, looking for anticipating. The glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Don't you just love that? I mean, I mean, just look at the things that are said there that come. We're looking for what? We're looking for, and I'm I'm not saying this to be cute, and I'm not being irreverent, but we're not looking for a guy to come back from heaven. You see what I'm saying? We're not just looking for the Lord from heaven. Are we? Who are we looking for? Yeah, we're looking for the Lord, but what who is that Lord? He's a blessed hope. He's not just going to casually appear like a neighbor dropping in on you. No, it's going to be a glorious appearing. And when he appears, it's going to be appearing of the great God. In him will be manifest the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And our Savior Jesus Christ. I just love those things there. It's not a little person in a little way that's going to show up. It's going to be great and it's going to be glorious. How can it not be? We're great sinners. We have a great Savior. We have great redemption. We have great grace. And when He comes, it's going to be a glorious appearing.
Are you anticipating that today? If you are, give credit to God because only God can teach you that. Only God can give you that desire. Most people dread the thought of either dying or the possibility, if they believe in a God, of showing up before God, seeing God face to face. I wish more people would think about it. But the believer's not. The believer eagerly anticipates. Paul said, we said it last week, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. Who gave him that desire? This is a man who had a desire to kill Christians. Now he has a desire to be with the one who saved those people and made them Christians. Can you say, true test, one of the greatest litmus tests of saving faith, of saving grace. Can you say two verses from the end of the Bible, I believe it is, Revelation 22 and 20, can you say honestly unto God, come even so, come Lord Jesus. That tells you exactly where your soul is at. You can lie to me or lie to yourself or lie to somebody else by saying that, but you can't lie to God. God knows your heart. He knows you if you want to see the sun or if you're one of those who's going to run and try to hide in the mountains and the rocks to get away from Him. Believers say, even so come, Lord Jesus. Even so come. Three proofs here. Do you have those? I pray you do today. If you do not, read with me this and I'm done. The first chapter of Titus, verse 15 and 16. Under the pure all things are pure, but under them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. Now that's only two places you can be. But even the mind and conscience is defiled. That's where we started. Are you still there? Or has the grace of God that you're trusting in for salvation, has it taught you these other things? You could be here. If you are, you need to repent of your sin. Don't be deceived. Are you professing that you know God in principle, in doctrine, in teaching, but in works, deny Him? What's that mean? That means doing the don'ts and not doing the do's. Are you being abominable, disobedient, and to every good work reprobate? If so, and you find yourself there, and you can admit to it, I praise God. I thank God that He showed you that. Repent of your sins. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Heed the words of Christ Himself. Come unto me, all you that are labored and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. May God enable you to do that today if you have the need.